The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Good evening, Grace Bible Church and Friends of Grace. Uh, this last Sunday, we were working through 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This was our, our third and final engagement with 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13, as we've continued our progress through the book as a whole. Now, in this time, I provided a, a broad overview of Peter's two letters, uh, more broad with the first one, and then we narrowed our focus on the second letter, which is our primary point of attention. But I did that to establish a, a context, and, uh, and not only the context, but also a continuity, um, not only between the two letters, but to our passage, because in our passage, we're going to look at uh, the expectation of the conduct of those who live with a view to Christ's return, to include the day of the Lord and the eternal state. But this wasn't something new to this immediate section. Rather, we've observed as we walk through 1 Peter and then through 2 Peter that he has a consistent focus on the eternal things and how they frame the present realities. And so in 1 Peter, if we were to, to frame the book very broadly, very generally, we might call it a, a letter that speaks to uh, present suffering with a view to the fact that it will yield to future glory. And with that, uh, we're pressed consistently to, to the nature and expectation of Christ's return and how that informs our conduct and our lives. Um, we specifically drew out 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, um, how it speaks to the command that we're to live, to, to have a, a vantage point of view to Christ's return. And then verses uh, 14, 15, 16, it continues to develop. Not only does that uh, life um, direct us generally, but it, it directs us to holiness of life. And so those are matters that obviously are going to come up again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, a view to uh, future glory, a view to Christ's uh, return, and holiness of life and conduct. Now, again, we, we frame the book very, very largely, present suffering, yielding to future glory. And then we slowed down a little bit and refreshed ourselves on um, the different chapters in Second Peter. Again, we're looking at context and continuity of theme and development as they're going to inform our work in Second Peter chapter 3. And we reminded ourselves that in Second Peter chapter 1 that we were provided a foundation for believers, uh, not unlike what we saw in First Peter chapter 1, a foundation and charge for believers Chapter 2, we were introduced um, to the false teachers, uh, which Peter severely rebuked. He exposed them, rebuked them, um, really uh, was pretty firm with them, as was fitting. And then we hit chapter 3, and you have an exposure and rebuke of the mockers. And they were those who were specifically assaulting Christ and his church and his scriptures as it centered on the mocking of Christ's sure and promised return. And he really kind of closes that argument with um, really 8, 9, and 10 are kind of a, a, a wrapping up of that. He's addressed the, the, the folly of their uh, thinking, the way they, they fail to appreciate the testimony of the scriptures. They don't understand the timing or the nature of the timing. And so we recognize that uh, they don't have standing, especially as we view the, the ar arguments of the scriptures, the testimony of the prophets, the testimony of the apostles. And so we continued our way to work our way through. And then also as we walked through chapter 3, we noted something that we've seen in pieces, but we've kind of um, 
put it together here, as it were. So we've walked through these passages, but I wanted to demonstrate that as we've walked through Second Peter chapter 3, that he's also given us five major points in redemptive history. And it kind of frames, I think, a good way to think about what he's addressing in verses 11 through 13. So we saw five points of um, uh, time markers in redemptive history. Some of them have passed, one that we're in, some are yet to be. So the first reference we have is to creation. We saw that in verse 5. The second, we have a reference to the great historic cataclysmic judgment of the entire world with the Noahic flood. We saw that in verse 6. Then we have our present experience, uh, namely that of the expression of God's patience, uh, desiring for men to repent and to come to salvific faith before that fourth marker, which is the day of the Lord, something we gave uh, no small measure of attention to last week in our work in um, chapter 3, verse 10. And then fifth and finally, where we came to this last week, we have the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth, and that's most uh, precisely addressed in verse 13. So observing these major moments that frame history, our, our present experience and the future, we argued that Peter is drawing out that you don't properly understand our present world, nor that which is to come by way of judgment and ultimately the new creation, without first understanding those historic moments that have been addressed throughout the testimony of the scriptures and that he's referenced to here. And with this, we specifically noted that part of his rebuke of the, the mockers was that they have a deficient argument, specifically as it centers on their lack of attentiveness to the historic truths that are articulated here. Peter explains in verse 5 that when the mockers mock in this way, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. So we have those two markers, the creation and the Noahic flood. Peter says they have no regard to it. They they're not remembering that in the proper sense. And then we address that just as it's imperative to understand these moments of history, so also having a view to the end of all things helps us better understand our present experience of, of, of sojourning in a world that's it's mired by sin, it's antagonistic to the things of God. So how do we understand that in view not only of history, but also to that which is to come? So we understand that these matters will come to a, a full and fitting conclusion. And in the meantime, we also understand that this, uh, there's a bit of a, what we could call a stopgap. So we know the day of the Lord's coming. So why hasn't it come yet? Well, because of our present experience that we could largely frame as this time of the patience of God being expressed. And Peter expressed that so clearly in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's where we are now, in this place that falls most immediately between two great judgments, the Noahic flood, the day of the Lord, and that falls between largely two creations, the, the creations of the heavens and the earth, and the creation of the new heavens, a new earth. And these matters not only frame the chapter, but um, his statements on, uh, that he makes in uh, verses 11 to 13 um, that speak to not only the, the timing of Christ's return, that's, that was more the emphasis on 8 through 10, but now more on the believer's conduct. And so that conduct is really, uh, it helps us understand how these things inform it, again, with a view to judgment and with a view to creation on both sides of the spectrum. And broadly, I would argue, again, that uh, having that understanding of creation, judgment, 
present patience, the day of the Lord, and the eternal state will inform conduct, will inform an understanding of God's purposes and plans as they unfold, which is where our attention went in terms of our immediate passage. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? And then, uh, obviously, we'll go into 13 in just a moment. But with this framework in mind, particularly with his attention most closely fixed, not only to uh, these larger matters, but most closely fixed on the day of the Lord, we observe that he frames uh, the expectation of our lives and conduct. What kind of people I ought to be? And that almost sounds like a question. Um, some translations have actually even framed it as a question, but really... Uh, we saw that grammatically and uh, that there's good precedent, good understanding, even uh, passages such as 1 John 3, that we see that there's a like usage of this adjective, that it's, uh, it's forming an emphatic statement. It's not a question, what kind of people ought to be? How do we understand? No, he's not asking what kind of people he ought to be, but declaring this is the kind of people that we are, a people of holy conduct, a people of godliness, and a people who are eagerly and expectantly looking for our Lord's sure and promised return. And in view of these things, we, we actually looked through 10 passages. And I know that might sound a little bit of, a, of an exhaustive treatment, but we wanted to walk through what does holiness of conduct look like? What does godliness look like? So we, we walked through 10 different passages in Peter's two letters, most of them in 1 Peter, and it packed examples of what exactly this life of holy conduct and godliness looks like because what we saw was that it was clear how we can live, how we should live, how we are to live. But it was also really clear that these things are the normal um, experiences of life. Uh, it's just faithfulness. It's faithfulness in walking. It's how we think. It's how we conduct ourselves. It's how we engage others. It's how we, um, it's how we work. It's how we live in our families, how we are governed and how we govern. So it's a range of expressions that we, we walk through. And again, noting that so plainly and consistently, um, these exhortations um, and commands, they weren't just, this is how you live, and now we're going to retro look at it. But often, I would say implicitly, but even explicitly at times, those commands with how we live throughout First Peter and the Second Peter were framed with a view to Christ's return. So we're not going to visit all those right now. I'd encourage you to, to listen back to the message and to do your own a faithful study in these regards, but you'll see that implicitly and often explicitly, the commands that we were given in terms of how we live and how we walk in this time of sojourning is with a view to Christ's return. And so we, that's how we, we examined holy conduct and godliness and saw that it was rather quite plain in the testimony that's already been provided to us. And then we went on to discuss how Peter not only expresses our lives with holy conduct and godliness, but as ones that are expectantly looking, eagerly, enthusiastically looking. And we noted how he concentrates this expression of our lives in verses 12 through 14. So we're going to be in verses 14 through the remainder of the book um, this next week, perhaps even the next one as well. But we noticed that uh, we are a people that are looking looking, looking. So we saw that in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, looking for new heavens and a new earth. And verse 14, looking for these things. And while it might sound silly, um, I express that it's the people of the book who are also a people on the look. 
And that's who we want to be. We want to be a people who are of the scriptures, who love the scriptures, delight ourselves in them, give our attention and strength to them so that we might submit to them, so that we might better know our Lord and walk in a way that's pleasing to him, that we might worship and live well. So we're a people of the book. And Peter makes it very clear that if you're of the book, then you're on the look. You're expectantly, eagerly looking. That's part of our identity, a major part of our identity. As this is the nature of our hope, it presses us to a consistent disposition of looking and longing. A looking and longing that inevitably frames our character and our conduct. And then from here, we wrestled through this language of hastening. Um, you can see here, um, in whole, uh, we ought to be holy in conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. So this language of hastening, and we're trying to discern, is this simply expressing an urgent expectation, or might it be inferring, if not plainly stating, that faithful conduct will expedite the timing of Christ's return? Well, my conclusion is that it's expressing an urgent expectancy, but an urgent expectancy that it's expressed through vigorous applications of faithfulness to include the declaring of Christ's excellencies to all persons. That's the nature of our identity, as was expressed in 1 Peter. But when we do that, when we declare Christ's excellencies to one another, that's, that has a vantage point to, in, in one way. But what about when we declare Christ's excellencies to the unbelieving world? Well, we would call that declaring the gospel. A gospel that expresses that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, a time unexpected and unknown to all, a time that will conclude with God's present expressions of patience toward you that you might not perish, but rather would come to repentance. And finally, uh, regarding this matter, I asked, uh, because there's still a measure of tension, hastening, well, is it just urgent expectancy that forms itself in, in, in faithful living? I think so, but I think it's still fair to ask, might our conduct, again, might it impact the timing of Christ's return? And so finally, I gave the resolution that yes. If, if such is what God ordains, then yes. So does our conduct inform the timing of Christ's return? Yes, if that's what God has ordained. Because like so many others, it's going to be a matter of tension and understanding. And I don't know that we're fully going to unpack it. Does the Lord use that? Does he expect that? It's really challenging to unpack. And so really, I think the best place to, to settle ourselves is what is clear. We've been called to faithfulness and urgent expectation. And if that is what God uses, then praise be to God that we were part of what he chose to use and part of his sovereign plan working itself out throughout redemptive history, as it were. Because at the end of the day, we also have to recognize we're not going to manipulate God's timetable. And I don't think most people that are uh, spurred on by this, I don't think that's even what they're thinking or that's their ambition. So we need to be careful that we don't drift that way, though, or that we don't even... Uh, consider such things. We're not going to manipulate God's timetable any more than we're going to make anyone believe. These are God's works. His timing and his redeeming of a people, that's his work. But they're works that he's called us to participate in. And how do we participate in that? Well, by way of holy conduct and godliness and expectantly looking. And finally, we came to those precious promises that we pick up with verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness 
dwells. So the precious promises of new heavens and new earth, promises that Peter draws from the prophet Isaiah, affirming here according to his promises, we're looking for these things. And again, one of the early elements of my study, I was asking questions of the text. Where are those promises rooted? Well, they're rooted in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. And this is what we're looking to now, a new heavens and new earth, just again as the Lord promised so long ago through the prophet Isaiah. So Peter was drawing from what he's already regarded as authoritative, the sure prophetic word, the words of the prophets and those who have preceded us and expressing Really, he's framing it now, I would argue he's expressing what was beyond their scope to maybe fully see or understand, especially as Isaiah 65 and 66 have language both of the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. And I would argue that that's the nature of many prophetic passages. We have that um, two elements, as it were. Both will be enjoyed, both will be experienced, and both will come in God's proper timing and ordering of all things. But for now... Where are we? Well, we're in a place where we wait. And we don't wait as those who are maybe in a long line at the, the DMV waiting to get our tag or maybe something with our license updated or changed uh, just in this endless state of boredom, as it were, or maybe waiting to get on a plane or get off a plane. We're always eager to get on. We're eager to get off. And we're not bored and, and groping for something to occupy our attention, but whether we are eagerly and expectantly waiting. And as if Christ's return wasn't magnificent in and of itself, so as to produce this eager and expectant waiting, we also have, with his sure return, with, with that will come also the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, a new heavens and new earth produced by the Holy Creator for an eternal standing and fit for righteous habitation a place in which righteousness will find a home. Because we know that righteousness, it's so strange in this present world, but it won't be strange there. It will be at home, and so will we, we who are in Christ. And so we concluded once more, here we are. This is where we are in God's folding, unfolding plan uh, between uh, two magnificent and righteous and cataclysmic and judgments, and ultimately between two points of creation, the present creation that began some 6,000 years ago and the awaited new creation in which righteousness will dwell. And we're looking. We're eagerly looking. And again, this is where we are. We are... Um, a beloved people with a like faith to Peter and the apostles, a people who are longingly expecting our, our Lord's promised and sure return, waiting for his full and final and righteous judgment to be expressed, and waiting with a view to the, the instituting of the new heavens and new earth, a waiting that's invigorated by clear, uh, Christ's clear testimony of his return. And now all the more magnificently fueled by a view to this very moment. First, the culminating conclusion of the day of the Lord, and then the eternal state. So here we are, in the experience of God's patience, a patience that was extended toward all of us who are in Christ. The delay of, well, the apparent delay, the patience of God has been a season in which all of us who are in Christ came to faith in which we pray many others would. 
that patience is framed in a way that should inform our thinking, judgment, creation. Because first creation's already been instituted. First cataclysmic judgment's already come and passed. There's a future judgment, the day of the Lord. And it will be terrible and magnificent and glorious. And he will accomplish all of his purposes with that, just as he said he would. And it will yield to the millennial kingdom. And then that will ultimately yield to the eternal state in which we will have a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All these things frame our present conduct, holy conduct, godliness, urgently, expectantly waiting. So what a precious, precious passage to get to walk through. And in view of that, let's consider some ways that we might respond in prayer. And I think it's fitting that most of our responses, I would encourage you toward uh, praise and thanksgiving to God. And there's rooms for much more than we have here, much more praise, much more petition. And petition should be uh, no small measure of attention, but I think praise needs to have its moment as well. So first I would Um, Put forward, praise God for the clear testimony, exhortations, and commands that direct us to lives of holy conduct, godliness, and an urgent expectancy of Christ's return. Second, praise God for his clear and magnificent promises and their glorious range and transformative impact. Third, praise God that in due time he will not only deal justly with the wicked, the ungodly, and the unrepentant, but that he will also reward and bless his beloved. And finally, and this is a, I'm not even sure this is a sentence anymore, but I want to encourage you, let's pray in this way. Pray that as individuals and as the body of Christ, that we would be found faithful in our living, holy, and godly lives as we await Christ's return to include declaring of the gospel to those who have not submitted to faith in Christ, and who cannot join us in eagerly looking for his sure return. So these are some ways that we can respond in prayer. This is a high-level review also of our engagement with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. I hope it was encouraging to you. I find this extraordinarily encouraging. And um, for those of you who want to follow and listen, maybe you weren't able to be here Sunday or you even want to just review the full message, um, I would encourage you to take advantage of Every Monday, we load our um, uh, Sunday morning sermon and Sunday school on our um, audio podcast. Every Monday, you can find that link through the website. The videos of our message, they're posted on Thursdays of, again, the Sunday morning sermon and the Sunday school lesson. And then um, if you're able to join us, we'll be here Wednesday in our prayer meeting. We're continuing to work through Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24 And uh, again, just unpacking the glories of the scriptures, how we should think about it, how it should direct our lives of prayer, and obviously we'll give our attention to prayer. Um, For those of you who are part of Grace Bible Church, I look forward to seeing and joining you in prayer. For those of you who are not, either because of distance or commitments to other local churches or otherwise, I would encourage you to remember that we have a promise to pray for anybody who submits items of prayer to us. We'll be glad to pray for a solid month, giving attention to any matters that come to us by way of prayer. We won't use that as a bait and hook to, to get you, gotcha, email you all the time. We might ask, Is there, would you like for us to continue to pray or how are things progressed? Otherwise, after 30 days, we'll just hope the best in terms of what the Lord's uh, purposes are for your life. But again, if you would like to, contact us. We'll pray for you. That's a major part of what we do at prayer meeting. We should pray 
We pray as a church body on Sundays. We obviously pray throughout the week. So again, hopefully these things are encouraging to you and the Lord will use them to strengthen our walk and uh, the expressions of faithfulness that he's called us to. All right, grace and peace to you all.